It's more or less impossible for me to talk about this film in my usual manner, so uh, I'm not going to. I do want to mention, <laughs> I sincerely considered actually, for the first time, I think ever, really, having visual aids just kind of pop up over there to kind of help distinguish some of the parts of this film. But then I realized that I couldn't do that without making jokes, and I, I kind of want to avoid that. Although all I'm going to say is XKCD, and some of you will get that. This is also about a $7,000 $7, film, which is nothing short of astonishing given what they do with it. Although, in hindsight, it makes perfect sense. There's no special effects at all. And the box itself and most of the actual equipment is relatively low-tier low and low-kit. All the person would have to do is set up the script, set up the actors, and make sure that they have filming rights at the places they need to do, and then very, very carefully map out the script. And I know that's, I say that so dismissively. Let me rewind a second. Stuff like this is the kind of indie film that I enjoy. A film where they're like, okay, well, I don't have access to the materials and resources to tell the kind of stories that I would like to or that I would want to or that, you know, otherwise could be done. So I need to, by definition, break down my storytelling substantially. Let me give you just one example of something they couldn't do with this. Even though there are multiple scenes where Aaron, for example, literally talks to himself, they couldn't show two Aarons on screen at the same time. That would require various... There's actually a lot of ways you could do that, but that would require some kind of special effects. So they need to process this in a way so they can't pull a Back to the Future 2, in other words. They can't literally have Marty McFly sneaking under the car while Marty McFly is in the car as they pass by, right? That's expensive. That requires money. So you need to structure your movie in a way that takes that disadvantage and twists it so that it no longer becomes a disadvantage or somehow actually becomes an advantage. I also want to say probably the thing I liked most about this film is how mundane it is. Even though we're talking about time travel, we are talking about an amazingly limited form of time travel. And Everything is presented as if this is just kind of the thing that you could see happening to Bill and Bob down at the office, basically. Which, yeah, makes a lot of sense. That was part of the point. They wanted this to be more believable than most time travel stories. Now, I've heard several people say this is one of the best time travel movies uh, ever. And a lot of that, of course, comes down to the craft of the script, which is my final point. It's not like you can't have a really well-crafted script when it comes to a full, big-budget production. But when you have a small project production, you have to. Because it's your only strength. Let me use a weird parallel. Forgive me for a moment. I've considered going into game development, you know, many times in my life, but especially in, as I've been studying game design for so much of the la better part of the last 15 to 20 years. And one of the biggest things that always prevents me is I would, there are specific games that I have in my head that I'd want to build, and I know that those would be expensive. Realistically speaking, if someone like me was to go into game development right now with the amazing amount of spare time I have, I would have to do something like an actual text adventure or maybe something really bare bones like a visual novel uh, walking simulator kind of a thing or, you know, just literally using RPG Maker and accepting what may become, right? In short, the game would be kind of crap. The only thing that would salvage it then would be the strength of the writing. And therefore, I would have to pour my heart and soul into really polishing and crafting the best narrative I possibly could, because that's the only way it could actually be any good. 
you want an example of this, by the way, look at Undertale, because he went through the same basic process. I say he. There were multiple people in that project. But it was mostly Fox, mostly Toby Fox. So you can kind of see the idea here. It's the same thing with this film. Obviously, a huge amount of effort was put into crafting the narrative. Now, <laughs> that being said, you guys have asked me to uh, talk about this film, and that means I'm going to really get into it as much as I can, because it's kind of hard to talk about some of the concepts here, but I'm going to do the best thing I can. I do want to mention a few things. So first of all, right at the beginning, we have this nice little bit where they're talking, the four friends are sitting around the, the table talking. And what I like most about it is it's basically a red herring. We are getting base exposition rather quickly and efficiently. These are four guys who work an office job who, in their spare time, try to invent stuff to make a little bit of extra money on the side. We also infer from later conversations that Platt is the is directly responsible for the fact that they have basically lost out on a patent in the past, and therefore that's a pretty serious issue for them. But they're just kind of trying to make this work and trying to make it big, and they clearly haven't yet. They're not quite friends. I would say it's more accurate to say that they are co-workers, because I know exactly what that kind of co-worker relationship works like. And... This is my first bit of major praise for the movie, other than the good exposition we see going on. In fact, there's actually a lot of good exposition in this film. The first thing we see is they talk like normal human beings. I know that sounds horrible. This is the kind of thing that arguably is bad movie making, if you think about it, because it makes the movie harder to digest for the viewer. So you can see why most movies don't do this. But it does make things more realistic when people kind of sort of talk over each other, accidentally or deliberately. That's normal. That's how people talk in real life. Like, I actually, I have, if, you, if you've ever seen me during my Thursday night streams, when I'm streaming with other people, I have this habit where I'll start to say something, and, I'm, and I realize too late that I am accidentally talking over them. I thought they were done, but they keep going, so I'll just do this, and I'll just slam my hand into my mouth to make me shut up, because otherwise my instinct is to try and conclude the sentence and then go back to being quiet, because that's how normal people talk. So, very believable, very fun. Um... I'm looking at my notes here. As you might imagine, I know you can't really see, but my notes are all over the place on this one. <laughs> uh, let's see. The garage science. A lot of the opening part of the film is all about garage science and the idea of how they're going to procure the materials they need and all, just all this fun stuff. I'm trying to think of where to begin which I suppose is amusing, because again, I don't really have a lot to say about the film in the strictest sense, like in the linear sense. So let's let's go ahead and talk about types of time travel. Let's start with that, okay? That's a good way to start. In fiction, there are three broad categories of time travel, with a very, very minor amount of bleed over between the second and the third types. So type one time travel is, and I actually do have a visual aid here, and I'm going to be referring to this later. Type 1 time travel is time as a linear line. Now, presume this is going to be important later, so do me a favor and, and pay attention. This part right here is forwards, so time is going this way. Make sense? So time as a linear line, type 1 time travel, is everything that happened always happened and always will happen. 
Now, for quite a while, I was presuming that was the type of time travel we were seeing in this film. Unfortunately, that is not true, because we demonstrably see one specific incident that is demonstrably changed by the interactions of the characters. Now, thanks to the nature of how the alterations work, we do see the first run-through of Aaron 6 before we see the second run-through of Abe 5. But it's still an alteration and therefore cannot qualify as type 1 time travel. So that's ejected out the window. That's fine. This is by far the hardest type of time travel to write for. Because you have to... The, the point of this time travel from a writer's perspective is you have to account for all the time travel in the story having already happened before it actually happens. You have to have mapped everything out very carefully and very precisely. So let's eject that. Next type of time travel. Now, this is a fun one, because next type of time travel is type 2 time travel. You notice we still have one line here, but this line is malleable. This is probably the single most common type of time travel that is usually presented when it comes to science fiction, because the idea here is you go to a certain point, and then you rewind over here, but because you change things, this is now different. How different is up to, up to, you know, debate? There's actually, you know, everyone talks about the butterfly effect. But the long and the short of it is we actually don't and can't predict which changes will cause which effects. That's kind of the point. So, for example, you may change only very minor things, like, for example, renting a hotel that is no longer available for someone who needed it, which could lead to some consequences down the line. I'm not the only one to notice that, right? Every time they rent a hotel and every time they rent that storage facility, what they are doing is altering the timeline. That actually amused me because their whole point is they're trying to avoid time alterations as much as possible, and in so doing, they alter the timeline. In fairness, there's nothing they could do to truly avoid altering the timeline. But what they do is still more impacting than what I would assume in, or in such circumstances. For example, even though they're like, oh, I don't want to meet myself, actually what I would probably do is go ahead and effectively arrange exactly that. Have it in some secure place, honestly, probably in my own apartment, or someplace safe where I know I'm the only one with the keys, you know, something like that. Set the thing up, you know, okay, sure. Go ahead and uh, start it up, and then go put in some headphones, sit in a corner with some food and, and drink already prepared, and play the Switch all day, you know, or for the six hours, for example. Then when that's done, headphones out, put the Switch down, go over, and make sure the Switch is offline, by the way, go over, walk into the thing, go back in six hours, and then leave, as previous me is walking over to go in the corner, I go ahead and move on and go forward with whatever I was going to do that day. You know, something like that, right? Because, but, I know that I'm, explain, I'm failing at explaining this, the mere act of traveling to another place is altering the timeline. The mere act of commerce interaction is altering the timeline. The mere fact of renting a place is interacting, and so forth. And so You get the problem. There are multiple issues with the way they're doing this. I get that they were trying to come up with the best they could at the time, and I'm, I'm certainly not blaming the filmmakers, though. Absolutely not. I'm pointing out the stupidity of the characters' actions here. However, getting back to my explanation, type 2 time travel means each time time travel happens, the one timeline is altered as a consequence. Brief side note. Very, very, very careful manipulation of type 2 time travel can be perceived as type 1. 
and it would be imperceptible to the viewer unless otherwise demonstrably presented as such. To put it in another way, let's say that they did the Type 2 time travel, and they made sure that everything happened exactly as it was supposed to the second time through, so that nothing seemingly the events always happened the way they always would. It's not actually Type 1 time travel, but it is Type 2 attempting to emulate Type 1. In fact, if you're paying attention, this is one of the things that both Abe and Aaron do extensively in this film. And yeah, I noticed the earbud the first time around. Just pointing that out. Obviously, he was already prepared on this step, but moving on. So, that's type 2. Type 3, I can't visually present as well, so just bear with me. Type 3 is like this. So you're traveling here, and at this point, you decide to go to time travel. Now, what happens is... This timeline keeps going, just minus you. You have been removed from the timeline entirely. What happens now is as you go back, you don't go back to the same timeline. You go back to a completely separate timeline. The original is still here. I know I... I yeah. The original is still here. <laughs> it's, it's a duster. It's a feather duster. The original timeline is still here, but you are now on the second, a second timeline which you have crafted by the action of time traveling. This now proceeds at this way, and each time you time travel, a new timeline is crafted and generated. Now, the important point, and this, this is the really important point from distinction of a fictional character, type 3 time travel obviously is the easiest to write for, because you don't have to account for anything. Anytime you time travel, all you're doing is making a new branch. So there's no changes because all you're doing is, is branching off of the existing timeline, right? However, it also contains... Uh, one of the biggest detriments in character for someone who is time-traveling, because it effectively means what they do doesn't affect them or they, which may or may not bother them. Let me put this into this terminology. Let's say you, right now, invent time travel. Congratulations, but it's type 3. So any time travel is going to craft a new timeline. So you decide to send... Hear me out. You send Bob, who's a very close friend of yours, into the past to change history and make everything better. Like, you're going to be rich, and, and mankind is saved, and the Vulcans show up, and Star Trek happens, right? That's all because of you. Congratulations! You get no benefit from that. That's type 3 time travel in a nutshell. Because you're still here in the original timeline where none of that ever happened. Now, in type to, to continue that parallel, in type 2 time travel, you technically do get benefit of that. But kind of retroactively. Because you send Bob back... And then you never existed. Instead, you are reverted back to the point where you originally were, and now you're a previous you who now gets the benefits of the Star Trek thing. In Type 1 time travel, that situation basically can't happen because it, what it means is you have failed. You send Bob back and then nothing changes because it would have had to have already happened in order for it to happen now. The way this would, you see why type 1 time travel is harder to write for, because in type 1, you would have to, rather than having Bob, uh, you sending Bob back to cause Star Trek, you would have to be in Star Trek already. And you've already got the paradise, and you've already got the wonderfulness, and then you send Bob back to ensure that Star Trek happens. Now that seems like a minor change, but keeping all that straight is very, very difficult, as lots of fiction can show. This leads me, rather naturally, into this film. What type are we dealing with? <sighs> now, for the longest time, I was assuming type 2. And honestly, I would say type 2 is probably what the intent of the authors were. 
in order to, to make this seem like type 2 time travel. However, after very cons careful consideration, I have decided it is most likely type 3, because type 3 is the only way to avoid a small plot hole. See, here's the thing. By all accounts, the film is presented as type 2. We go back, we alter the timeline. As I mentioned, that is demonstrable, given the fact that there's the, the time where we see Aaron 6 twice. Once with Abe, I think that's Abe 1 at that point, and once with Abe 5, right? Ergo, we naturally and demonstrably see an altered timeline. The same event at the same time happening in a different way. So it has to be type 2 or type 3. It cannot be type 1. First establishment. Now, again, the film seems to seem to make it to be an alterable thing. And what's interesting is they have a lot of worries and fears about causality and, as they put it, lack of symmetry. In other words, if we alter things, how do things go? Now, this is a very valid complaint. Uh, let me give you a thought exercise. So here's the box, right? And here's the period of time you want to enter the box. Now, let us presume for a moment that you go here and you enter the box and you go back and then in the middle of this you decide to destroy the box, right? Well, the problem is that basically can't really happen because at that point... Well, hang on. Let me actually rewind a second. I'm sorry. I'm saying this in the wrong order. Let's say someone else destroys the box who isn't time-traveling. Now, you might be thinking, well, what happens then? Nothing. You never entered the box because you never could. Remember, even though they are reversing, cause, uh, the, reversing the temporal flow here for this one brief period of time... Let me actually... Pull out another one here. Okay. Professional YouTuber, ladies and gentlemen. So this and this is the direction of motion of time, okay? So time is going this way, and time is going this way towards the feathers. You with me? This is like halfway translucent, isn't it? Whatever, it's, it's blue. So this is the time spent in the box. So this is what we're looking at. Now, this is going to come up later, so try to keep this in mind. Now, under the normal circumstances, see, this, this is important because everywhere else, time is still moving forward, but in here, time is effectively moving backward. It's a one-to-one -one ratio. You have to stay in there for the same amount of time that you are prevent, you know, staying in there, that you, that you want to go back in time, which also, by the way, makes time travel extremely uncomfortable. I'll talk about that in a second. So, if you are going through here, and the box is destroyed at some point in, in this middle of, of the natural flow of time, without your interference, what happens is you get to this point where you're going to enter it and then start going back, and you can't because the box is damaged. Very simple. So in short, the paradox is self-defeating because it never existed. A slightly more complex question is, what if you go through here and then go back and then go in and try to damage the existing box that you've already gone back through. That is a very interesting question. And ultimately, kind of, the film tries to sort of answer this, because the film, as I mentioned, does show alterable timelines and several demonstrations of, as they put it, lack of symmetry. It's okay, because this is actually very neatly explained away by Type 3 time travel. See, here's the problem. If this was Type 2 what you would have would be a mess, basically. There's only a couple ways this could go. If Time Traveler's Exemption Clause exists, which, based on the events of the film, I would say it does, what would happen is you go through, go back through the other thing, 
go in sever so the go back never happened which means anything that you were that you might have done will never be done but there's still a you over here which will still attempt to enter which can't therefore and now you have two stranded people in the same timeline going forward and a timeline has been altered radically actually and the time machine itself is is now caught, is is now removed from the equation but both of you are still there now that is of course assuming time traveler's exemption clause which is kind of mandatory for any time travel story on the off chance you don't know what that is time traveler's exemption clause means the time traveler is immune to the effects of time travel in short if you go back and kill your father before you are born you continue to exist because you are exempt from the alterations of the timeline make sense now, if time travel is a clause, exemption clause doesn't exist, then you're screwed because what you've just done is ensured that the events go exactly the same way they always went, which would then mean to them happening and de-happening basically infinitely. Congratulations, you've just destroyed the universe. Actually, we're not 100% sure what would happen of that, but the general idea is in a type 2 time travel situation, what would effectively have is this period of history would be written and then rewritten and then rewritten and then rewritten and then rewritten, and then rewritten infinitely. It could be argued that time would never actually proceed forward from that point if you did that, effectively ending the universe. Again, congratulations. But if time travel's exemption clause does exist, you're cool. No worries. <clears throat> so, <laughs> so, so far this all makes a degree of sense, and this all kind of lines up with type 2. But there's one other thing to talk about before we move on to why I think this is type 3. And that is the fact that, God, this is just... I, I actually really like how limited time travel is in this. I'm sure it was because of the budget issues, because they couldn't afford a DeLorean, to, to, to use a parallel. But the fact is, you've got to get in this box, which has to be set up in a very specific way. And you've got to fill it with argon. And you've got to lay in there, uncomfortably, for X amount of time. The exact amount of time you want to go in. You also have to leave the box unattended for the amount of time you want to go back in. So in other words, you can only, basically the time travel can only go back to the point at which the machine was turned on and specifically set up for this specific purpose. So, boop. Hang out for a day. Get in thing and then lay there for a day. And then get back out. Remember, by the way, that Aaron 6 and Abe 5 both go back rather substantial periods of time. Which sounds immensely unpleasant to me. I mean, I know they have the oxygen and the water. And the fact that they just kind of get to starve for X amount of days. But you could see why this... I mean, this is going to sound strange. As a writer and as an... an as a consumer, as a viewer, I've always preferred when the rules are more firmly established and ground down. In short, I'd rather the time travel be relatively low tier and very limited than it be high tier and you can do whatever. Same thing with magic, same thing with medicine, same thing with technology. The more insane it gets, the more questions it brings up. Well, hang on. If I have a gun that can shoot a teleporting bullet that will teleport straight to its target, maintaining all of its momentum, and I have a way to target it through objects and metal and energy then why do we have a war going on right now, to use a direct example? Instead, with the limited, when things are much more limited, it, it basically, uh, it, it's a way of ensuring that there are less plot holes and ensuring that things make more sense. This is one of the reasons why I prefer this method. Huthor, if you're watching this, I hope you're understanding at least part of my point here. I know you're not. Not watching this, I mean, not, not understanding it. So... <clears throat> 
This brings me to the other point. It's also immensely uncomfortable and unpleasant to time travel. And I already mentioned that. You can only t you can only go into the box. You can only go back to when it was turned on, and you can only go through it with a one to one ratio. So all that sucks. But just just God, just picture laying there in the box, being like, "Okay, this is fun." Now, in fairness, the possibility of of opening it up and doing more with it is certainly feasible. Uh, but as Aaron already points out, this is a recyclable technology since the box can be broken down and transferred and you can just make another one and take it back and then make another one and take it back and have as many as you need and many backups as you need. I also do appreciate the fact that Abe had the failsafe pretty much right off the bat. And of course, Aaron noticed the failsafe, which lead to the eventual adventures of what I keep calling Aaron 6. Because Aaron 6 is the one we actually see for the majority of the film. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, we never see Aaron 0, the original Aaron. Fun fact. Anyways, so <laughs> having stated all that, let's talk about why I think this is type 3 time travel. So let's go back to my visuals here, okay? So externally to the box, everything is going this way. And internally to the box, things are going this way, so long as the field is in effect. We also know that that field is in effect, uh, it, it's, the way they describe it is, it builds up, establishes, and then winds down. So, there's like a gradient period where it kind of shifts from reverse time to normal time flow, in between here and here, right? The problem is, all of this makes perfect sense until you realize that they cannot instantaneously move into the box over here at this point. If I'm not explaining my point correctly, let me try as best as I can. So, from a baseline perspective, the idea of this and then this is very simple. The problem is, you need to be like, okay, I'm going to go in here, and then I'm going to go in here. But these events are still happening alongside here. So, while you're waiting here, you are already in here waiting here. Which means when you get in the box, the point of entry is also the point of exit, which means you're already there going the other way. Or in short, this doesn't work no matter how you think of it. Because there's no way to get in the box without literally running into yourself or like merging into yourself, like glorping into the person who, remember, is already there and will be there until the exact moment at which you enter the box. And because there's no exact precise moment of entry, that just gets into a whole other no level of weird, which I don't even want to cover. This point right here, the fact that you cannot enter without literally bumping into yourself, who is already there waiting for you to enter, is the biggest reason why I say this cannot be Type 2 time travel. Because that would be how a Type 2 time travel scenario would work. But if it's Type 3, this problem is suddenly resolved. Because in Type 3 time travel, you're not there. Because you haven't done it in this timeline. So you make the box, and you wait, and then you get in the box, and the moment you get in the box, you're up here now, in a new timeline, going back. And so in the new timeline that's been crafted, you're traveling backwards, and then you can get out and do whatever. Make sense? As much as I don't like Type 3 time travel, and I don't, it does neatly explain basically any plot hole or issue I would have with this film, and helps to make sense of the specific ways in which this time travel works. 
Now, that actually really sucks, because that essentially means that all of the events of this film are, I believe, the 10th time through. I actually sat down and figured this out, and then I found out that other people already did it for me. <laughs> Whatever. There's graphs out there you can watch. The point is, the, we actually see, under these circumstances of Type 3 time travel, everything we see is one or another of the timelines. Because, as I already mentioned, we do see demonstrable evidence of the same events different times. Which means each time we see the same event, we are viewing another timeline. Now, I know what you're about to say. Well, hang on, Laura, that doesn't make sense, because in the earlier events of the film, we actually view ourselves entering the timeline. Remember, one of the ways that Abe convinces Aaron of the time travel box is he allows Aaron to see Abe, Abe Zero, entering the box going back to become A1, Abe 1, which is the one he's talking to right now. And you're absolutely right. So, there's no way to reconcile that. So it's a plot hole. <laughs> Sorry, I did my best. I did my best. As I said before, this film is constructed as if it is type 2 time travel. And so I'm going to treat it as such. Other than the one little niggle, <sighs> One of the things I saw quoted about this film by Mr... Oh, gosh, I can't think of his name. Give me one second. Uh, what's his name? Uh, of course, now I can't find his name. You're going to have to give me a second here. I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong, too. That's the best part. Kareth? Shane Kareth? One of the points that was posited is that he tried to make this... He tried to basically follow real-life science and physics as closely as possible and then add time travel. Because <laughs> he had to have to graft that on there. And so in the, in the land of reality, and not trying to explain things away, the explanation for this inconsistency is grafting time travel onto real-life physics, which doesn't work. <laughs> so... I am looking forward to seeing people's ways to attempt to, to explain this in the comments section. Now, funnily enough, I actually don't have much else to say about the film. There's several key points of the film. The party, the party, the bleeding, the phone call, Platt, and Granger. And those are the major elements of the film. I actually jotted them down as we were going through, because there's a lot of red herringness going on throughout the film. And as we cover the, the events of Aaron 6 and Abe 1 and then Abe 5, I keep calling him Aaron 6, by the way. Technically, it's, I don't think it's actually Aaron 6 at that point in time, but that's neither here nor there. Point being, as we cover the events of Aaron 6 and Abe 5, um, most of the construction of the narrative is, is centered around those events. The time travel itself, as weird as this may sound, feels like a secondary element to them. So let's discuss several of those things as we go through that. Although, before we go forward, I do want to mention a couple things. Just little notes that occurred to me. I mentioned the hotel. I love the U-Haul thing, by the way. We need some place to store it, some place to put it long term, and the camera just turns to a U-Haul storage center. I love when Aaron freaks out about the ball game being different. Like, oh God, what have we done? What have we done? No, it's okay. It's okay. It's cool. And the cell phones. That's a fun one. Apparently they did real-life research on this, and apparently what a cell phone company does if two identical chips, two identical numbers actually do exist, then what will happen depends on the cell phone company. So that's fun. Either they'll ring both or they'll ring the first one they find. And again, it depends on the company, so who knows? Anyways, <clears throat> uh, let's see. We also have... I like the fact that there's this bit where Aaron gets out too soon. 
So naturally, he gets out later than Abe because he because he was going backward. I also wanted to comment on the mid-cap fund thing, but then I realized that this is already a very complex story, and you guys don't want to hear me talk about economics at length. All I'm going to say is that if you wanted to do this kind of cheating trading, which is actually legal, although you'd have a hell of a time proving that you don't have insider sources if anyone decides to, to research you on this. That would be fun. But if you did decide to try and uh, do this kind of trading, then... Uh, Doing it at a mid-cap fund is a good idea. To summarize as much as I possibly can, that means restricting yourself to safe funds, which already have lots of investment pushed through them and already have lots of money cycling around constantly. So in short, if you're buying you know, 10,000 shares of BlackRock, for example, that's nothing. That is an absolute pittance. They'll barely even notice that, and that's the point, to make as minimum of an impact as possible. Anyways. <sighs> so, the party. I'm actually going to do these in reverse order. Or not. Eh, I don't do this. Let's do the plat thing first. There's a nice bit. They don't actually show the results of the plat thing, actually. But the whole point of the plat thing, in my opinion, is, of course, to establish the kind of people these are. But also to kind of establish that this is, in fact, an alterable timeline, timeline scenario that you can change the timeline and in so doing continue to exist. It is my opinion that the mere existence of the of the entire scheme to go punch Platt right in the face and the fact that they apparently get away with it means that this is clearly an example of Time Travel's Exemption Clause, which is why I mentioned that earlier. I could also mention that the Time Travel's Exemption Clause basically has to exist, but this demonstrates it fully and firmly, so there's no doubt in my mind. That's all I have to say about that, other than the fact that it says a lot about Aaron's personality as he's talking to, you know, his wife or whoever about how, what would you do with a billion dollars? And she's like flummoxed by the idea, which is funny because me and my friends have had these kind of debates for uh, literally years at this point. It's a common discussion thing <laughs> for various practical as well as entertainment reasons. But I, I, I love that, that that his idea is, I just want to go and punch this guy right in the face. I don't want to hurt anyone else, I just want to hurt him. That, in my opinion, says a lot about his personality and the fact that he is willing to spend this on something so demonstrably petty and small. And that he's the kind of person who wants to have this kind of, shall we say, that he wants to be... That he's selfish. Let's just say this as bluntly as I can. That he's selfish. Remember, Aaron Six is the one who leaves behind his family forever and is totally cool with that. He has a wife and child that he's just willing to abandon and go to France for. Now, yes, Aaron Zero will eventually get out of that. In fact, we actually see him get out of the attic. So, Aaron Zero will continue on and continue to, you know, be a husband and father. So, it's not like he's worried about them being abandoned. But he still, he, the individual, is still willing to abandon his family and never see them or hear from them again. Process that, if you will. Picture what kind of person that is. Next thing I want to mention is the phone call, because the phone call, it's also a bit of indicative of the nature of the Type 2 time travel, which I already mentioned. And, and, and by the way, I should mention, when I say the phone call, I don't mean the narration. That's that's A2, that's Aaron 2, who is d d uh, leaving a phone call for Aaron 0, so he knows what's going on, bef after he has had the altercation with Aaron 6. So, 
By the way, I just realized I've been using this numbers game. That's what I used in my notes to help keep track of stuff. Zero is the first time through. One is the second time through. Two is the third time through, etc. That's the idea. It's a simple numbering scheme. Thus, Aaron 6 and I believe Abe 5 are in fact the final ones that go through that we see. Anyways, so the narration's from Aaron 2, and that's why he doesn't actually know the events of the party, because he never went to the party. Aaron 6 went to the party. But the phone call shows how, for all of his cautiousness, he is still negligent. That's important, because it helps to establish how un uncareful he is being at certain points in his life. This is also demonstrated during the confrontation between Abe 5 and Aaron 6. And when I say confrontation, I mean when he's sitting there listening to you know March Madness, and what he's actually listening to is the conversation. Now, we actually saw this scene before, but that was Abe 1 and Aaron 6. This time it's Abe 5 and Aaron 6. Now, Abe 5 goes through it, and both of them are going through through notes of how the conversation was supposed to go, which is just hysterical in its own right. We're both lying to, to maintain a lie that neither of us knows the other's doing. But the point is that Aaron 6 is paying so much attention to the conversation in his ear that he's not paying attention to the conversation out loud, and he actually says several lines out of place and basically wrong, which leads to Abe you know, eventually collapsing. And, of course, Abe is having issues... But my point being, the phone call and that scene helped to establish that Aaron isn't that precise. He's not that good. And that's okay. He's human. But that someone who can make simple and easy mistakes like that with potentially devastating consequences has access to a time machine. Need I say more? Then, speaking of which, this is a good time to talk about the bleeding. Bleeding out the ears. Now, I have seen an interview that mentions that this was supposed to be the, the time-created duplicates are imperfect, and therefore they're having issues. I have all of the problems with that statement, so I'm just going to eject it and move on with my own theorycrafting and headcrafting. Because in this case, the way this is presented actually makes plenty of sense if you presume that what's happening is the body is being pushed through a series of circumstances that it doesn't properly understand. The human body is incredibly adaptable. Amazingly adaptable. And I mention that because a lot of things that we consider illnesses are in fact the body adapting to something else, to some kind of influence or circumstance, which allows it to then survive. Because the body will do basically anything it has to to survive. It's kind of insane when you really think about it. It is my opinion that, the, that this is actually a very mundane answer, that the mere act of time traveling... That, that of, of the body being shoved back in time causes it to simply react in ways that are unpredictable because there's no way to do long-term testing on this kind of circumstance. How could there be? Right? There's no way to actually predict how much of a long-term effect this would have on people. This is one of the reasons why drugs, when they, are, when they are invented, have to go through literally years upon years, sometimes decades, of clinical trials in order to see what actually happens if, as a result of this new drug being, drug being introduced into the human body system. Because you cannot predict what's going to happen over the course of a week or a month or a year. You have to see what's going to happen a decade down the line. This is something that we've only really recently opened up to as, as a concept, scientifically speaking. Probably, I'd say, from the 40s onwards, if that. So, that's my take on it. 
because the, the way that it's presented, and excuse me, the way it was presented in the interview, not in the film, is the idea that every time you time travel, you're actually making, you are crafting a duplicate, and the original you ceases to be or is altered depending on the time travel shenanigans therein, which basically makes no sense to me and doesn't actually line up with the way the, the logic of the situation seems to work. So that's just my take on it, and that's why I'm moving forward with it. Next point. Next point I want to talk about is Granger. Now, he's the interesting one. Granger. <laughs> Granger. He's the biggest question mark of the entire film. And if I might be so bold, if he was ejected entirely, it would probably make the film a better film. I don't mean the earlier Granger. I mean the time-traveling Granger, who may or may not actually be time-traveling an undeterminate period of time. They never really exactly established when he went into the box, or how he became aware of the box, or why he ended up deciding it was necessary to go through the box, or how he gained access to the box. There's many problems with this. In fact, there's all the problems with this. This is, of course, why it's introduced to the story, and I understand that. As they state in the in the narration... The moment that he, they have this circumstance where someone who is not the only two people who know has time traveled in a way that is fairly demonstrable, something, and they don't know why or even how, what they have is what I call a blank sheet of paper, an infinite canvas in which to speculate. Now, that's bad, especially from a scientific perspective. If it can be literally any reason, you have to go back to the base source, and this, of course, makes sense, for why Abe would decide to eventually go back the full time and spend like a week in that damn box. That's horrible. And just go back to, to task. Go back to the original and say, nope, I'm out. Because something obviously goes horribly, horribly wrong, and we have to cut it off at the source. This leads, of course, to Abe 5, as I mentioned earlier. Unfortunately, I feel for the process of the narrative and the function of the story, the inclusion of Granger is one of the bigger missteps because he has to be a blank slate, you know, a blank sheet situation for the characters, but unfortunately that also means he's a blank sheet situation for the viewers, which means we know nothing about who and why and where and what, and therefore all we are left with is, oh yeah, and then something weird happens, okay, moving on. And in my opinion, that is a bit of a misstep in the narrative of the film. Which leads me, of course, to the party. <laughs> now, the party, by total contrast, is a perfect se sequence for the for the for the the sake of the film. The party is exactly what it should be. See, what happens at the party is the entire idea is that there's this X, and this X is someone who is unhinged enough, mentally deranged enough to pick up a gun and bring it into a crowded room, wielding it. Now, I know that sounds strange, and, and, and of course, in the realm of fiction, you're like, yeah, so... But do really try to process that. I want you to imagine you're at your next gathering, your next birthday party, your next, you know, work party, whatever, and someone just pulls out a shotgun. That person is mentally wrong. They need to be killed, or they need to be reprocessed into a human being that's actually functional. Because there is something demonstrably wrong with that person. And that's Aaron's overall point. That's why the party has to go correctly. That's why they have to go back and ensure that he is stopped and then jailed, rather than just trying to bypass the events entirely. Because remember, at this point they know they don't have to keep symmetry. They can alter the timeline. They have already altered the timeline many times at that point. 
So they have every option, but they decide to go through the party as planned because A, they know all the variables and therefore can react the best, and B, this ensures that he gets tossed off into jail and is a long-term solution to the problem rather than a short-term one. This, of course, also makes the party in many ways the crux of the characters and their overall methods. I love the little tidbit where they actually eject the cartridges from the shotgun, by the way, just to make sure, just to hedge their bets. Nice little touch. Anyways, so the party goes as planned, but what I find most interesting is that Abe is the one who is most hesitant about this, whereas Aaron is the one pushing for this the most. Aaron, who came back in order to specifically ensure that these events happen in the way that they needed to for the sake of his friend and those others who would be injured by this, and Abe, who is super hesitant because he's scared because he's not sure of the consequences of interaction. I remind you, the only one who benefits from this is Abe. And Abe is the one who is hesitant. Now, you could say that makes him a, an ungrateful friend, and that's a possibility. You could say that makes him a coward, and that's a possibility. I disagree with both assessments, though. I've already established Aaron's character. Aaron is the kind of person who will abandon his family on a whim. You know, just, just because. I shouldn't say on a whim. That's, that's dismissive. He is willing to abandon his family permanently in a way that he'll never see or interact with him again. And he's the kind of person who will punch a guy in the face just for the sake of feeling it. Abe is the kind of person who hesitates to do something that he know will probably save his girlfriend's life and save many other lives because he is cautious. Because Abe is not thinking about, you know, what he wants or what is good or what is right. Abe is thinking about what can happen, what might happen, and what is correct. And that brings the final distinction between the two into sharp focus. And me makes the ending a little bit questionable, because this now means that Abe 5 now gets to live the remainder of his life ensuring that they never make, that, that Abe 0 and Aaron 0 never actually make a time travel machine and actually make the thing actually work. Which means Abe 5 has basically just abandoned his life forever. I mean, how's he going to get money? His, his cards are the same one that Abe 0 is using, right? Meanwhile, Aaron 6 has gone off to France to build a much larger version of the box because, I mean, screw it, right? Very large and very in control? Yeah, that makes sense. I think that's basically everything. Yeah, I believe that's everything. I do hope you guys have enjoyed my thoughts on this. I hope I was able to actually get my thoughts out on this. This is a difficult film to talk about. But, you know, I hope the visual aids helped, and I hope the, the distinction of numbers helped, because this was an enjoyable flick. And I intend to talk about it tonight with a real-life friend who's actually seen it, so I'll be repeating these conversations in a little bit. Otherwise, I will be seeing you guys next time.